0: So, 1 Peter, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the hearing. Of his word today. Lord, as we approach your word today, we ask that all that is said would truly be from you. That as we hear this encouragement from Peter, from Peter who knows what it means to not be steadfast, who's encouraging us to be steadfast. Let us hear this encouragement and these words as your very words. Would you open our minds and our hearts and even now transform us more to be like Jesus? We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, all of us, all of us have a past, right? Um, There are things in our past that often we're not proud of. There are things in our past that are sources of or were sources of temptation. I was speaking with a person um, last week, actually, and he was mentioning that he had no place to go, uh, no place to stay that night. And I I said to this person, I said, well, can't you go back to your friends, maybe your family or your uh, your old roommates? And he said, no, I can't go back there. I, I can't go back to them, they're in a lifestyle of drugs and alcohol, and it would just drag me down. I can't go back to my past. I can't go back to my past. And that's why Peter is, is focusing on today. That's what he's focusing on. He's calling us to break with our past because God has broken the power of past sin in our life. So he's calling us to break with the sin in our life And to live wholly and completely for Him. To live wholly and completely for God. In the middle of a hostile world. It is a hostile world. And we do have to stick together, Chris. And this passage today shows us the motivation for living for God in the middle of a hostile world. And we'll also see, in light of Christ's coming again, the manner in which we can live in the middle of a hostile world. So firstly, let's look at some of the motivations that Peter gives us for living for God in the middle of a hostile world. For living for God when it's difficult. Motivations that help us to choose to suffer rather than to sin, as it's been said. Motivations that help us to live to be the holy people that God has called us to be. Well, we see the first motivation here In verse 1 of chapter 4. Look with me at at that verse. Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh. Because Christ has suffered in the flesh. The power of sin is broken. What what does this mean? This means that when he suffered in the flesh on the cross. As one of my, my friends says. He ceased with our sin. Not only has the penalty of your sin been paid for, but the power of it has been broken at the cross. Peter has spoken to this earlier in chapter 2 when he said in verse 24 of chapter 2, you can write that down, 1 Peter 2:24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Paul reinforces this and echoes this in Romans 6, Romans chapter 6, 5 through 11. For we have been, if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, that is our sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, so we also, Two Rivers Presbyterian Church, must consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Because Christ carried our sin in His body on the cross, the power of sin is broken. It no longer dominates us. It no longer defines us primarily. It's no longer our master. This should be sweetly refreshing to us. You have ceased from sin. You have ceased from sin. That doesn't mean that we no longer sin. Yes, the struggle is real, right? The struggle is real. And we will struggle and we will struggle, as one campus minister has said, and then we'll die and we'll get better. But the power of sin is broken so that we can have progress in holiness and, and, and grow in grace. This is a very practical thing for us to understand that we've ceased from sin because we struggle, don't we? We struggle often with very, very besetting sins. Pornography. The power of that sin is broken. Was broken at the cross. Outbursts of anger. At home. That no longer defines who you are. I don't know what it is for, for each of us. Maybe it's, maybe it's lust for money or power. That no longer defines and dominates you because your master is Jesus and what he says about you defines you you have ceased from sin so arm yourself with this same way of thinking look again at that verse arm yourself with this same way of thinking that just as Christ suffered to break the power of sin we can live for God when it's hard and choose to suffer for him And live for his will. Because the power of sin is broken. We can begin to see the pattern. The pattern of sin be broken in our lives. Because we are God's holy people now. We are his special people now. Yes the battle rages on. But God's goal for us will be achieved. He says it's predestined. Predestined. That we be conformed to the image of his son. God's goal for each one of us. Is that we, is that you and I would look like Jesus. And we're going to get there because he says we are. And you will get there. And that's an encouraging thing to realize that because Christ has suffered and ceased with sin, we can begin to live for him and see the pattern of sin be broken in our lives. Yes, the war rages on, but the final victory has been determined. I think about it this way in In 1944, on June 6, the Allies landed in Normandy during World War II. At that moment, at that moment, the back of the Nazi war machine was broken. Their power over the people of Europe would rapidly diminish. In a matter of months, they would be defeated. At that invasion, Hitler's Third Reich, the destruction of that, that nation, that Regime was determined. Though the battle against the remaining forces raged on, and though there would be setbacks and though there would be failures, the final outcome, the final victory, had been determined and sealed. Brothers and sisters, Christ's victory over sin has been accomplished. And your final triumph over sin has been sealed. Yes, the battle rages on, the struggle rages on, but the victory has been achieved And that besetting sin in your life, the victory for that has been achieved and already won because Christ invaded history and broke the back of Satan at the cross. He defeated him and he won our freedom from sin. So arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with this same way of thinking and and live for God. Strive to live for him because his power will be at work within you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. No longer living as the Gentiles do. Because the time for that, the time for that in your life is over. Peter's talking to people who would have just recently come out of this lifestyle of debauchery. Of, of what Derek Thomas calls sex and booze. Just a lifestyle where that is dominating your life. And so he's, he's calling them to move away from that. To remember who God has called them to be. We've already learned that God has called them to be as separate holy people. And so he's saying, remember who you are. Remember who you are. One of my favorite movies in uh, fifth grade was The Lion King. Anybody seen The Lion King? Remember that one? Um, There was a really profound moment uh, in in that movie that that I um, come back to uh, when Simba, who's the one who's to inherit the throne... Uh, He's run away from home, basically, uh, after some really terrible circumstances. He's run away from home, and he's kind of living for himself, kind of living the laid-back party lifestyle with his little um, warthog and meerkat friends. I can't remember their names. Um, And so he's doing his thing, and then all of a sudden, Rafiki. You remember Rafiki? He's kind of like the wise old sage monkey guy. Um, He comes, and he's like, basically, you know, a wake-up call for Simba. Hey, you know, knock, knock. Like, you're more than who you are now. And you need to see who you are. So look over in that pool down there. And, and Simba says, oh, I don't see anything. And Rafiki's like, no, look harder. And, and, and Simba looks and he sees the reflection of his father in him. And as you'll remember, as the, the scene progresses, this, this cloud appears. And this vision of Mufasa, who's Simba's father, appears. And he says, Simba. I'm not going to do the James Earl Jones voice. Simba. You are my son and the one true king. You are more now than what you've become. Don't go back to that past life. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. And so this is a repeated call from Peter to us to remember who we are. Because our tendency in suffering is to fall back into the coping mechanisms that are destructive. That were characteristic of our old life. But we're to remember who we are and to be who we are as God's special holy people. Yes, the struggle is real. Yes, it is difficult. But that's God's goal for us and we will attain it. So arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The misuse of sex and alcohol characterized the life of these people and their neighbors and friends. God's calling them to leave it behind. What's he calling us to leave behind? As he calls us to live for him, what is he calling us to let go of? That's a question for us today. In verse 4, we see that as we begin to live more and more in light of who we are, our friends and neighbors won't necessarily think it's the greatest thing ever. They won't necessarily applaud us because we don't participate in those things anymore. In fact, we'll actually be insulted for Christ at points and if you are insulted and maligned which the Bible says you will be you will suffer for Christ Jesus promises that 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 will happen but if you if you suffer and are maligned by people for seeking to live for God don't worry about it don't feel that sense of false guilt and shame one because Christ took all of your shame but two It's not yours to bear because they're not really angry with you. They're angry with the Lord. So when you suffer for Christ, think this way. Think this way. Think like Peter and the apostles did. When they left the presence of the religious leaders after being beaten and imprisoned, after they left them rejoicing for being worthy, being counted worthy of suffering. For Jesus' name. Let that be your attitude. Arm yourself with that way of thinking if you are maligned for the sake of Christ. But also, Peter is encouraging them by reminding them about judgment. Well, that's interesting. Judgment is encouraging? Well, what he's saying here is is this. Look, God's going to deal with the people that afflict you. You don't have to seek vengeance because God's got that taken care of. And, and, and God's judgment and vengeance that was supposed to fall on you, remember it fell upon Christ. But there's a word for those today who don't know Jesus. And this word about judgment should be encouraging in that it encourages you to flee to Christ. It's a gracious word. It's a gracious word that Peter gives to know that judgment is coming. Wouldn't you want to know if there was, a, if there was a, a car coming at you to get out of the way? And so Peter is saying, get out of the way. Follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Come to him. If you do not know Jesus today, there is judgment remaining for you. There is punishment and death and hell remaining. And so Peter speaks this word to you today to say, flee to Christ. Trust in him. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. There is no volume of sin that you can commit that will not be covered in the ocean of God's atoning grace for you in Christ Jesus. So I ask you to come to Him, to turn to Him. Find me, find Danny, find uh, any of the elders or deacons or a Christian brother or sister and ask how you can know the Lord today. So He motivates us to godly living. By reminding us that yes, we have ceased from sin and so we can break with that lifestyle. Judgment is coming. And, and in light of the, the coming judgment, in light of the day of the Lord, we can, we can see how to live. So not only does he show us the m- motives for godly living, he al- also shows us the manner of godly living. The manner of godly living which he focuses on now in verses 7 through 11. He sets the manner of godly living in the backdrop of the end of all things. Look at that verse there. It says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. What does that mean? Does it mean that Christ is coming tomorrow or in the next ten seconds? Um, maybe not. Uh, if he does, that will be great. Um, but what he's saying here is that chronologically in the course of time, the next, the next big thing um, somebody's put it this way. The next big thing to happen is Jesus coming back. Okay? So that's what he's talking about here. The end of all things is at hand. And in light of that, there's a certain way to live. We live in light of our coming king. I remember at chaplain school this spring, um, at, the end of, at the end of our time there, we were told that the, the deputy chief of chaplains was coming, the general, right? The general is coming. So when the general comes, there's a certain way that you need to act because he's coming. He's going to kind of inspect things, and he's going to tell us about what's going on in the Army Reserve, what's going on in the Army, and you're generally expected to to act accordingly. Um, I ended up getting into a push-up contest with him and losing, which didn't, I don't know how that fits in, but anyway, um, Peter is saying that our king, our redeemer, is coming and so there's a way to live and conduct ourselves accordingly. He's coming again. He's coming again on a white horse. It's going to be scary for some people, but for, for those of us who know him, it's a great day of rejoicing. It's a great day of feasting. So how do we live in light of this coming king? How do we live in joyful anticipation, in joyful anticipation of this coming king? Well, there's a few things Peter lists here, and since Peter moves at an accelerated pace, we will move at an accelerated pace through these things that Peter lists beginning in verse 7. He says, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Self-control, a fruit of the Spirit, right? Are you moving from instant gratification of your desires to self-discipline? Or is it the other way around? And in your thinking, are you sober-minded? Phil has reminded us a couple of times, several times, to think about God in the middle of suffering. When it gets hard, begin to think about God. Saturate, predicate, and undergird your thoughts about suffering with what God says about you and what he thinks. And you will begin to see reality. You'll begin to see the reality. It's around you. And all of that for the sake of our prayers. For the sake of our prayers. Now Peter's reminded us that there are certain things that hinder our prayers. He's reminded husbands that, that we ought to um, honor and understand our wives for the sake of our prayers. And in the same way he reminds us that, that there are things that, that help our prayers. Being sober minded and self controlled. They help us to be in a right frame of mind. Uh, they help uh, keep us from distractions so that we can pray. But with that, is prayer part of your life? Is is your life a praying life? Some of us have read that book. Is your life a praying life? Do you, is your day saturated by talking to your Father who loves you, who can't wait to hear from you? You know, I remember in the office the other day, um, Chris and I were talking and we were trying to figure out a certain situation as men. We try to fix things and figure it out on our own because we're, you know, self-determined and all that. But um, I remember saying to you, Chris, all we can do is pray. And you said, that's all, that's all we can ever do is pray. That That God works through prayer. That he accomplishes great and mighty things through prayer. And prayer is not the last place in our life. It ought to be the primary place in our life. So... A question for us is, what place do the ordinary means of grace have in your life? Are they foundational to your Christian life? The Word? Sacraments? And prayer? Does it characterize your life? Our manner of life should be characterized by a self-controlled, sober-minded, praying life. And with this foundation, we can begin in verse Eight to love one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. What does that earnest covering love look like? Simply this. It's the kind of love that forgives. The kind of love that forgives, as Jesus says, 70 times 7. It's the kind of love that was demonstrated by the families of those who were killed at Emmanuel AME as the representatives of those families stood before the accused murderer in the courtroom and faced him as he faced them, and over and over, each family said, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. Wow. That kind of love almost doesn't make sense. But it does make sense in light of how much we have been forgiven in Christ, doesn't it? Hmm. Are you, are you in a context where you can experience and give that earnest, covering love? Are you, are you placing yourself in a community and in fellowship where, where you can give mercy and receive mercy? And, and have grace bestowed upon you from Christ's people? One of the ways we do that at Two Rivers is through community groups. If you're, if you're not part of a community group, I would love to talk to you about how to be part of one. God calls us to earnest, covering love. Put yourself in places and alongside of people that you can forgive and be forgiven by. And a question for us today might, might simply be, who do we need to cover with our love? Christ has covered our sin with his atonement. And we can cover one another with forgiveness. So it is, a, it is a covering love that characterizes the lives of those who have been set free from sin. But we're also called to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is actually a place that is um, kind of a struggle for me because my home is my castle. I used to have a, a little thing over my light that said my room is my castle when I was growing up. And my home's kind of my refuge. And so this is a challenge for me. It's actually a challenge for all of us to open our homes uh, to, to open our lives to people around us, to strangers. Hebrews reminds us that, that some in entertaining strangers have entertained angels without, without knowing it. That's pretty cool. Um, do you practice hospitality? Remember that Jesus is not grumbling in heaven as he prepares a place for us to come and live for all eternity. So we can with joy invite somebody to our home, maybe... One night this week. He moves on. As each has received a gift to serve one another as stewards of God's very grace. Each of us has a spiritual gift. Each of us has a spiritual gift for service in the church. Dan Doriani defines spiritual gifts this way. And you'll, you'll want to write down this definition. A spiritual gift is the capacity and the desire for ministry given by God for regular use to bear fruit in the church. It is a capacity and desire for ministry given by God for regular use to bear fruit in the church. There are several places in Scripture that, write, that, that record our, our spiritual gifts. You can write down Romans 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. This gives kind of a comprehensive understanding of what spiritual gifts are. Uh, And as you read those passages, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4, and others, you might see yourself there. You might be you might see see you have um, particular inclinations there. Dr. Doriani poses a few questions that are helpful for us in recognizing our spiritual gifts. Um, And here they are. What do I do best? So what do I do best? Where do I sense God's pleasure in my efforts and work? What do wise people? What do wise people ask me to do again and again? On your way out today, actually, on the corner of that table, there's a spiritual gifts inventory. A spiritual gifts inventory that Tim Keller has put out that we try to put out in our inquirers classes. Uh, if you want to learn more about maybe how God has suited you for service in His church. Feel free to pick up a a copy of that inventory on your way out this morning. So Peter lists two categories of gifts here. Firstly, speaking gifts. Whoever speaks, speaks as if he speaks the oracles of God. These include gifts of discernment, encouragement, evangelism, knowledge, shepherding, teaching, wisdom. For those of you who have these gifts, are you using these gifts? Do you allow your voice to be heard in community groups? Or in Bible study? Do you speak the truth in love? As James reminds us, don't bring death with your words. Give life. In light of Jesus who has spoken to us wonderful words of life. Are you known as someone whose speech is godly? Does your manner of speaking, does your voice remind people of the voice of their Savior? For those of us who serve. Serving in the strength that God supplies. Those who are gifted with administration, creativity, hospitality, mercy, and service. Many of you are shining examples of what it means to pour out yourselves. Even as Paul asked that he would be poured out. I could go on till tomorrow morning. Talking about many of you and how you've served this body. Thank you. Keep it up. Continue to pour yourselves out, even as Christ has poured himself out for you. Yes, take seasons of respite. Take a break from hosting community group for a while. Take a break from the nursery for a while. Take a break from the diaconate, from actively serving there for a while. But don't Don't set aside your gift on the the, the shelf and let it collect dust. Continue to serve because God promises every strength. Just as He promises to give us grace and sanctification, where we're enabled by God's Spirit more and more to die into sin, to live into righteousness, every place He calls us, even to Christian service, He will supply every strength you need to serve and lead and teach and care where He calls you. So serve in the strength that God supplies and realize that you will receive the storehouses of his grace to you. How can you serve? If you're looking for a place to serve, maybe looking to serve in a new place or a different place in the body, right now we have opportunities, as we've already mentioned. In community groups, we're hoping to start a couple of new ones this fall. You can see me about that. We have opportunities for mentors, for coaches, for teachers, and jobs for life. You can talk to John Ring Jr. about that. Right now we also have needs in in Sunday school. We have needs in the nursery as well. Suzanne Gross would would love to talk to talk to you about some upcoming needs we'll have in the nursery this fall. Remember we've covenanted together to be the body, to serve one another. Let's do that in this manner. In light of our coming King, in light of what God has done for us in breaking the power of sin in light of the gospel, in light of the fact that we're his holy special people now, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We can live for him, even when it's hard, giving glory to him in everything, because he delights and rejoices over us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for this word this morning, this word that that encourages, that convicts, that, that pulls down our pride and lifts up our downcast hearts. Lord, impress upon us that we have ceased from sin. So as we fight against sin, even as we see setbacks, Lord, that we would not give up. But know that you you have, you will stop at nothing, at nothing until you make us like your son. We rejoice in that and, and glory in that even as we await the day of his coming. In Jesus' name, we ask all of these things and give you praise. Amen. Now as we enter into a time of communion this morning, I want to invite us to think, and I want to invite us to remember that Christ has ceased with our sin, that he's done with our sin, that in his body he took took our sin upon him, and with his blood he covered and atoned for all of our sin. And so if you are one today who has been set free from sin, who knows that, that Christ is, is done with the power of sin in your life, you're invited to this table this morning. I invite our men to come up. As, as they're coming up, if you've been set free from sin, you are welcome. If you are trusting in Christ this morning, you are welcome at this table. If you know that, that you belong to Him, even though you struggle. You're invited to this table. This table is not just for the strong. It's for the weak. It's for those who know Christ but doubt. It's for all of us who belong to him and have called upon the name of the Lord. If you don't know him this morning, I invite you to sit and remain and pray and ask the Lord to open the eyes of your heart. Let's pray and thank the Lord for this table this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thank you for the Lord Jesus for not sparing him but giving him over for us all. Help us to see in this table that you have broken the power of sin, paid for the penalty of sin, and covered over our sin with your atoning blood in Jesus Christ. Lord, let us glory in you and be encouraged and strengthened by this supper. In Jesus' name, amen. Here are the words of the Apostle Paul. Then on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he broke it, he gave thanks, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In like manner, after supper, he also took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. As our men go to their stations, I want to point out that our middle station is with grape juice and bread. The center one here is for intinction, and the one at the very far end is a common cup. Come. Come all you who are weary, come all you who need encouragement to feast at the Lord's table. And I'll be on the end for prayer.